This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt, Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. Matty, how are you today? I'm well. Should we tell the listeners that we've got a new audio set up? Uh, I'm worried that if we do that, we are <laughs> setting, our, yeah, we're setting ourselves up for failure because hopefully this recording sounds better than others. Hopefully it sounds awesome. Yeah. well, it's like you're not even listening to us. We'll get better. <laughs> All right. So we've got a, um, a complete new setup, both... A, um, a mixer, which I can see all the dials going up and down, which looks like mine's at a good range. Yeah, everyone's loving this conversation about <laughs> behind the scenes. And uh, we've gotten rid of our old microphones. Yes, we have. So what are we talking about today, Mike? We are talking about NSAIDs. What did N say? Uh, uh, who's N? That's my question. Who's on first? All right. Um, so NSAIDs acronym? Uh, yeah, it's a it's an acronym standing not for an initialism like FBI, but an acronym like SCUBA. So that uh, I'm not going to ask what an acronym is then. Okay. So NSAID stands for non-steroid anti-inflammatory drugs. Yes. S drugs. S. Drugs. So NSAIDs. Yeah. Okay. So do you want to tell the listeners what this actually means? Okay. So, so non-steroidal. So it's not working as a steroid, which means that the way these drugs work in the body is they don't jump through the fatty layer of the cells to play around with the DNA inside, it works by binding uh, to particular receptors. Okay. So these are like, steroids are like glucocorticoids that 
we can release ourselves mm-hmm. under stressful situations to help reduce our inflammatory response. Yes. But these are non-steroid. Yes. So they're non-lipid soluble. Um, so they have to do their action by binding to things on the outside of a cell. Is that right? That's right. And they're not inflammatory. They're non-inflammatory. Okay. Anti-inflammatory right, is the, yeah, the term okay. that we use. So the anti-inflammatory, there are a category of drugs. How many are we talking here? Like in the category? Of NSAIDs. Of NSAIDs. I don't know. Give me a number. Uh, heaps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's between 20, 20 and 50. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not going to go through all that many, are we? I hope not, and the listeners hope not. <laughs> we'll probably go through about half a dozen. All right, so maybe we'll get started with telling the listeners why would you want to use non-steroid or NSAIDs? Okay, so predominantly people use NSAIDs for three main reasons, but there's other reasons that people use them, which we'll get to. But mainly it's to stop inflammation, stop pain, and stop fever. Right. So when we talk about pain, we did this last week when we spoke about opioids, and we found that opioids particularly are useful centrally, so in the spinal cord and probably the brain, to get rid of pain, right? Is it fair by assuming that the primary action on, of NSAIDs work more peripherally, so more at the site of inflammation? More at the site of inflammation, yep, so peripherally and a little bit at the spinal cord as well. Okay, and would you assume, this is maybe a long stretch to assume this, but is it fair to say that a lot of pain would come from inflammation? At yeah. least at least acutely? Yes. Yeah, so I would say acute pain, not chronic pain, not neuropathic pain, but acute pain would be nociceptive, meaning stimulation of pain fibers. And one of the most common ways that you can stimula- stimulate pain fibers is by releasing chemicals that actually bind directly to them to stimulate them or drop their threshold down to make it easier for them to send a signal. Yeah. So I think it's Pain's obviously there to, t- to notify us that there's been injury. Yeah. There's been damage. And what, or potential. And what goes hand in hand with tissue injury will be inflammation. Perfect. Which we have done that previously. Mm. So something wrapped up in the inflammatory process will induce a painful stimulus. Correct. Now, do you want to talk about what that may be? Like, yeah, I think it's important to say that during the process of inflammation, you get those... So f- give me an example. Of an inflammatory response? Yeah, so I might get pain from a form of inflammation. Okay. I punch Matt in the face. So that's a mechanical? That's a mechanical force or trauma damaging his vascularized tissue. My face. Of his big head. (laughs) And this leads to an inflammatory response, which is basically a whole bunch of cells releasing their, spilling their guts, which are filled with chemicals. Okay. And- Look, there's hundreds of these pro-inflammatory chemicals, but one of the very important types of chemicals is something called prostaglandins. Right. And so these are playing a role in what? Sensitizing the nerve? Yeah, so basically prostaglandins, what they'll do is they drop the threshold of a pain receptor, so a nociceptor. So remember that pain receptors, they need to have enough positive charge inside that it's around about negative 55 millivolts. This is the key that unlocks all the sodium channels that results in sending the painful stimulus, also known as an action potential. So you can change around with this threshold and you can make it closer to the threshold. Usually it rests at negative 90 and needs to get to negative 55. But you can, with the release of prostaglandins, you can make it rest at like negative 70, negative 60. So it doesn't take much of a stimulus to, then to, make it to trigger fire. the pain, pain uh, signal. 
Okay, so predominantly NSAIDs will work in the space of stopping prostaglandins making pain or does they actually stop the production of prostaglandins? Uh, so it stops the production of prostaglandins. And important to say that prostaglandins, they don't just play a role in pain, but when you release prostaglandins, you also have a multitude of vascular effects which go, uh, basically go hand in hand with inflammation. So vasodilation okay. and increased vascular permeability. These are also also mediated by prostaglandins. Yeah, and I think we'll also just note because you did say that um, NSAIDs primarily work by doing three things, um, pain, inflammation, but also fever. And one primary um, chemical that's released in tissue injury, particularly with, through infection, is something called interleukin, which usually comes from something like, say, a macrophage. Mm. And if you put this chemical into your blood, it will circulate and go up to your hypothalamus. What do you know the hypothalamus is important for? Uh, oh, many heaps of things, but one is it's the thermostat of the body. So the temperature. And so in this case, it will change the thermostat to an, a higher temperature, which yep. will basically tell your body you're cold and you start to shiver and want to put more clothes on. So this is a fever. And it raises that temperature up and yeah, you end up feeling like you're closer to 39 degrees Celsius. And so degrees. NSAIDs can block fever production. So this is what an antipyretic. So through interleukins or through prostaglandins? Uh, I think it's through the prostaglandin intrinsically in the hypothalamus. Yeah. Uh, through maybe the, the, bl- the intrinsic blood flow in the hypothalamus, but I could be wrong. Yep. But, but it will block that effect. So blocks pain by stopping the sensitization of pain fibers by prostaglandins. I think also just to add a bit of detail there, also uh, downstream effects of bradykinin as well because bradykinin is a, a sensitizer to nerves. It stops the uh, inflammatory response or at least certain aspects of the inflammatory response mediated by by prostaglandins and also stops the fever response mediated by prostaglandins. So as you can see, prostaglandins play a very important role in pain, fever and inflammation, but they also play a multitude of other roles throughout the body. Okay. Now, before we get on to those, so, so why would a person use NSAIDs? Now, we'll get to the particulars a bit later, but you have the acute phases of injury. So this could be fractures, sprains, muscle injuries, so commonly in musculoskeletal, acutely, so that they're useful in that space. They also can be used, useful in some chronic musculoskeletal, so arthritis pain. Yeah. They're useful in there. They're also quite useful post-operatively, so after surgery, um, particularly, say, in dental surgery, they're good there. Um, they can also be really useful in headaches, migraines, but also menstrual cramping. So a multitude of... So of, they're very widely used. Yeah. So how about we move now on to how do the prostaglandins come about? Okay. So I'm assuming this is the crux of where NSAIDs work. Is that fair? Correct. Okay. Do you want to start in that space? So first thing I want to say is that you need to be aware that there's two enzymes. There's actually more, but we're only going to focus on two. Two enzymes in the body called cyclooxygenase 1 and cyclooxygenase 2. And they're two separate genes, right? And what these cyclooxygenase enzymes or COX enzymes do is that they produce prostaglandins. 
Now they produce prostaglandins from something called arachidonic acid. Mm-hmm. And arachidonic acid is basically a breakdown product of cell membranes. Yeah. What are they called? Cell membranes, it, well, phospholipid bilayers. Yeah, yeah. So just to add a bit of detail, sorry to jump in. So the, the membranes are made of phospholipids. And when there's injury, for some reason, there's an activation of an enzyme called um, phospholipase A2, which turns these phospholipids, which are the kind of fatty phosphate molecules, into arachidonic acid. And so from there, we have to go from arachidonic acid into prostaglandins. And what did you say the enzymes are? COX-1 and COX-2. Okay. There's a Uh, COX-3, but it's not worth bringing up. I think it's also just important just to say here that COX-1 and COX-2 can also be called prostaglandin H synthase. Okay. One and two, but more commonly they're known. So technically they could be known as PGH2-1 and PGH, PGH2-2. Great. But more commonly they're referred as COX-1 and COX-2. Yeah. So we'll just refer to them as COX-1, COX-2 in this particular podcast. So once you've transferred this arachidonic acid with the help of either COX-1 and COX-2, what are you left with? You're left with prostaglandins, but it's not, you know, not all prostaglandins are like one another. There's different subsets or categories of prostaglandins. All right. So there's actually five of them. So I'm going to go through each five and this this is what physiologically they do. Okay. okay. Some are very important from a homeostatic point of view, and some can be there used in injury. And so the prostaglandins, are they just prostaglandin one to five? Uh, almost. So the first one, mm. in no order, but this is the order I'm going to put it in. So Matt's first one. <laughs> so there's prostaglandin D2. Right. So this will be called PGD2. Okay. Where do you find these predominantly? Well, Mast cells will release this particular phospholipid and it's important for recruiting T helper cells. So these are a type of white blood cell. So the mast cells are found in skin and in mucous membranes. So they're a good cell to tell the body when there's a problem going on, right? And so these mast cells release the PGD2 and recruit T helper cells as well as cinephils and basophils into tissue. Right, so all I hear is that this PGD2 is pro-inflammatory. Yeah, and this particular step is really important. Is for, it inducible or is it always active? Well, this is seems to be important for allergic asthma. Okay. And so this particular process... So type 2 hypersensitivity reactions. Yeah, something in that space. Another, another action of PGD2 is in the brain. It seems to have an important function in regulating temperature during your sleeping. Ah. Okay. Other, another interesting function is it seems to be released um, to inhibit hair growth. And right. So they've taken biopsies. To inhibit hair growth. That's right. They seem, they've taken biopsies from people who are bald and their tissue in their baldness region or their skin um, seems to have higher amounts of this prostaglandin. So wait, are you saying that by taking NSAIDs with I'm not saying baldness, anything. I'm not is saying that what anything. you've said? I'm not saying anything. Um, other functions of PGD2 is it seems to have a role in bronchoconstriction and also vasoconstriction. So oh, constriction. Constriction. I thought the prostaglandins generally were vasodilators. Well, they can be, and this is where we're oh, going to get different. Christ, okay. Okay, moving to the next one. So this is PGE2, okay? This one seems to be quite important in pregnancy. So this has a stimulating effect to activate smooth muscle, particularly in the uterus and the cervix. So this particular molecule, PGE2, 
can be used to induce labor. So yes, my wife had a prostaglandin gel uh, used to hopefully stimulate little Tia to come through. Uh, did not work. Uh, we had to jump on an oxytocin drip, which again stimulates the uterine contractions. And uh, Bub luckily came about 30 hours later. Luckily. Yeah, luckily. Um, all right, so this is important in labour and in pregnancy. And it's in sperm, right? I'm not sure. Well, yeah. I guess that would play Prostate a role. Prostaglandins in sperm, it plays one of the roles to irritate the, uh, irritate the cervix, which is one of the reasons why. So the cervix is all mucousy and prostaglandins help break that mucus down to get the sperm all the way up. Yeah, um, so but open also the cervix up, right? Open the cervix yeah. up, but they also, you know how the f- people say, oh, you know, oh, you're 40 weeks pregnant, oh, you need bub to come, go have sex with your partner and that's going to stimulate the process. The reasoning behind that, even though I don't think there's any evidence to say that it works, is that the prostaglandins in the sperm uh, irritate the cervix enough to stimulate bub to come through. And I'm guessing, I'm not saying this this is true, I'm guessing that um, the prostate gland was named because it released, well, it had prostaglandins. Yeah, it releases prostaglandins, yep. Which is possibly this. Potentially prostaglandins are released from the prostate gland. So I would assume the prostate was named first. That's what I meant. Yeah. Prostaglandin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we've got, uh, it's important in pregnancy and labor induction. Um, So we've only done two folks. Yeah, I know. But we'll get there. But it'll make (laughs) more sense to know this. Uh, It's also important for um, keeping the ductus uh, ductus arteriosus open. The ductus arteriosus open. Yeah, so patent. It's a patent, that's right. So, so what's the ductus arteriosus? This in the baby that has not <laughs> that has not been born yet, so in utero. Yep. Um, there's no need to send blood to the baby's lungs. Okay. Should we say fetus? Probably better. So in, in the fetus, uh, in the in the uterus, there's no need to send blood to the the fetus lungs to get oxygenation because yeah, the, the mother's doing it for you. So we divert, or the fetus does, diverts all the blood um, to bypass the lungs. And, okay. it's, and this is done by the ductus arteriosus. From where to where? Um, from the pulmonary trunk yep. to the aorta. Oh, okay. Now, this is kept open by PGE2. Okay? Ah, okay. So um, from a clinical standpoint, if the baby is born, now it's a baby, neonate, if it's born with... Congenital heart defects. Such as patent ductus arteriosus? No, no. Just other defects, probably like septal defects. Oh, yeah. Before they bring them into surgery to repair the defects, the physician may give PGE2 to keep the ductus arterius open. To bub? To bub. Or to mum? To bub. Oh, okay. Okay. To keep it open. To keep it open. And so we still get a decent amount of, I'm not sure the, the specifics around it, but- it, it provides enough oxygenation for the baby until So it stops significant surgery. shunting and Somehow. flow around the but body. But I will say this. In a patent ductus arteriosus where you want it to be closed, they'll give an NSAID to because stop. Because it stops prostaglandins. That's right. All and right. it will close it. Okay. I'm not sure if that confused everyone or not. No, no. Well, it didn't confuse me. Okay. So any other things here? Well, it also is a vasodilator. I like all the questions you're asking yourself. It's, a, it's, it's also a vasodilator. Okay, so we, PGE2 vasodilates, right. PGD2 vasoconstricts. Yes. Now, the use here, it can be injected, PGE2, as a, a gel into the, the urethra of the penis to right. induce erection. 
So, really? So males who have erection dysfunction may utilise PGE2 to get an erection. Can I just ask a quick question? <laughs> um, why would anyone choose that over a, popping a little blue pill? I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, so that's PGE2. Moving okay. on. PGF2, it's also important for um, inducing labour or also can be used in abortion. It seems to link through the oxytocin effect with PGF2, which then goes back to the corpus luteum. So say that again. So there seems to be a regulation between oxytocin, okay, this PGF2, and then this PGF2 goes back to the corpus luteum yeah. to turn it off. And if you turn that off, you don't have prostaglandin, and oh. that prostaglandin pregnancy ends. So this is so. What, what would release the prostaglandins? Because uh, I assume that this is this is an unwarranted I termination. So. Yes, yes. Na- natural. Yes. So if if there was no fertilization and there was no feedback, the PGF two would then tell the corpus luteum to lice or wow. break. Okay, yeah. I didn't know that. So this can be a medication for that, that case, but it also can be used for inducing labour as well. Wow. Okay, now we move into the other one. So now we go to thromboxin. So this is TXA2. So, so, throb- is this, so is thromboxane a prostaglandin? Well, it's in that pathway. Okay. But it's, this one's called TXA2 instead of the PGs. So probably not technically, okay. thromboxin. So this chemical, thromboxin, is produced in an activated platelet. So when platelets are turned on, it will release this to cause more platelets to aggregate and stick together. So thromboxane is a, a pro-coagulant? Correct. Or, right. or th- pro-thrombotic. Pro-thrombotic. So it promotes clotting. Yeah. All right. So I guess I could say here that it's um, also important, this is where aspirin will work, but we'll come back to that. Okay. Yeah? Yep. Um, interestingly, I found here we have something called Prim's Metal Angina. I've heard of that. Okay. It... What Is it still called Prinz Metal Angina? Variant, variant angina. Okay. So what this type of angina is basically reducing blood flow to the heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. But this particular type of angina seems to be through vasospasm. Yeah. Okay. Now thromboxin does cause vasoconstriction. So it seems that thromboxin A is linked to this particular type of um, angina. So it also seems so. You've, it's sort of a twofold effect for a heart attack. Is that it not only constricts the coronaries, but also increases the likelihood to clot. Yes, which both is pretty bad, right? Both things you don't want. So does that mean if I were to take a drug that inhibits thromboxane, then it would promote coronary dilation and also reduce clotting? Definitely reduce clotting. But not sure about the coronary damage. Well, I know that a person with who's on aspirin, so for its cardio-protective, um, cardio other NSAIDs are contraindicated because it negates that effect. Okay. Okay, let's now talk about some specifics. Last one. Oh, okay. So the last one is PGI2, okay, which is sometimes called prostacyclin. Okay, this one almost does the opposite of thromboxane. So it will inhibit platelet aggregation and it will cause vasodilation. Yeah. And it seems to have a strong effect on the kidney's renal order regulation of blood flow. 
Okay. Okay. That's so that's it all right. for me okay. in all the prostaglandins. I just thought it was interesting to know what they do normally because now what we're going to do is block. Well, them someone all. needed to find it interesting. <laughs> okay. Let's move on. You take over. Okay, I'm going to take over because I want to talk about the fact that, so Matt's just highlighted all the different types of prostaglandins and what they can do. But the thing is that what we can look at now is that the two COX enzymes that make all these prostaglandins actually make some specifically more than others. So for example, what you would find is that, and this is the way I like to break it up, COX-1 makes prostaglandins that seem to play a really important role in maintaining gut health. Now, when I say gut health, I mainly mean maintaining gut lining. And When you say gut, do you mean the whole GRT or the stomach only? Yeah, I mainly mean the stomach. Okay. So the stomach's lining inside is mucus and bicarbonate predominantly. Why? Why? Well, because the stomach produces acid at a pH of around about one to three, which is enough to digest nails. So it's enough to digest itself. And the reason like, why, like when you chew your nails or like no, a, a, nails, a house nail? Yeah, house nail. <laughs> so if you were to ingest house nails, which nobody recommends, your stomach, if it went past your esophagus, if you were lucky enough, would have the capacity to break it down. Because like I said, the hydrogen ions, H+, uh, between one to three pH, break it down. Okay. Now the stomach can digest itself, but it doesn't because of two major reasons. One, a lot of mucus has been produced to create a barrier. And two, a lot of bicarbonate is produced to neutralize the hydrogen ions. Okay. We've spoken about it in previous episodes, but if you bind hydrogen ions to bicarbonate, it ultimately just produces water and carbon dioxide, two innocuous chemicals that we can excrete. So that's great. Now, the thing is that Predominantly, prostaglandins produced by COX-1 play a role in creating these two protective barriers. So that's really important. Another important point is that when you look at the thromboxane, that is going to be mediated by COX-1 as well. And so that's the pro-clotting effect. Now, if we move over to COX-2, what you're going to find is that COX-2 is important when it comes... Did you say it was prostacyclin that is, is the anti-clotting or the... Yeah. Yep. So COX-2 looks after the prostacyclin or the prostaglandins involved in stopping clotting. So I want you to think about that. COX-1, pro-clotting or pro-platelet. COX-2, anti-clotting or anti-platelet. That's important because the types of NSAIDs you give that stop these COX enzyme, enzymes, if they're more one than two... Well, it's going to change the effect than if it's more two than one. The other thing is that there's a whole bunch of prostaglandins and their effects that sit under the camp of both COX-1 and COX-2. So for example, regardless of whether it's COX-1 or COX-2, what these prostaglandins are going to do is promote inflammation, promote pain, promote fever. And one really important thing is that it helps renal perfusion, helps bring the blood to the kidneys and allow enough blood to be filtered at the nephrons of the kidneys so that it maintains adequate glomerular filtration rate, which is 120 mils per minute. You don't want this to go too high. You don't want this to go too low. Now think about it. If it goes too low, the kidneys don't filter the blood, metabolic compounds, products, toxins potentially build up in the blood. You get sick very quickly. So you need to maintain glomerular filtration rate and prostaglandins help maintain glomerular filtration rate. So that means, so again, COX-1, 
mucus, bicarbonate in the stomach, and proplatelet activation. COX-2, platelet inhibition. Both COX-1 and COX-2 promote pain, promote fever, promote inflammation, and help renal perfusion. So if I was to summarize it, is it best, could I, could I say COX-1 seems to be more about homeostatic mechanisms yeah. and COX-2 is more about uh, inflammatory states where there's been injury and therefore it will induce inflammation, pain, and fever. Yeah, so, well, it seems, so this is interesting because because there's so much overlap with COX-1 and COX-2, we know that both of them play a role in pain, fever, and inflammation. It seems COX-2 probably a little bit more so, um, especially when it comes to inflammation. Uh, but just know that there's significant overlap. Okay. I think that's, that's an important take-home point. And the things that we highlighted that are different are the things that you should remember. Gut integrity and platelet clotting or lack of platelet clotting are the main ones. Okay. I think. Okay. Because the most common side effects, which we're going to hit shortly, will be these issues. Right. So do you want to just put some brief NSAID drugs into these categories okay, of, that's a of good COX-1 idea. or COX-2 just so we have that starting point and then we can go into the specific drugs. All right, that's a good idea. So let's just say that COX-1, the drug that you need to know that inhibits COX-1 and therefore inhibits the prostaglandins that have the effects of mucus, intake, uh, mucus bicarbonate and clotting is aspirin. Okay, particularly in a low dose, right? Yeah, particularly in a low dose, but aspirin is quite commonly referred to as a COX-1 specific inhibitor. Okay. So aspirin, if you're using it for its purpose of not clotting, so why would a person want to do that? Well, if somebody has maybe some sort of cardiovascular risk factors, um, maybe they've, if they've had some cardiovascular events in the past, um, maybe so like, if they've had a heart attack in the past, yeah. as an example. Or a high risk of one. Or high risk of one. And same then, with ischemic strokes. Yes. Okay. So all these uh, things are sort of risk factors and would basically highlight the need to maybe reduce the likelihood of clotting. Okay. Because it reduces your likelihood of having some sort of cardiovascular event. All right. So is is aspirin the only one that sits kind of on its own in the COX-1? Yes, but you could also argue that something called naproxen is at, at low doses... COX-1 specific, but at probably over-the-counter or therapeutic doses is both COX-1 and COX-2. Seems to be more so COX-1. So it seems to be two major NSAIDs that have this antiplatelet role, and that is aspirin and naproxen. All right, okay. The rest inhibit both equally. Well, the rest that we're going to talk about in a sec inhibit both equally, therefore nullify any of the antiplatelet effects. Okay, so are there any other... NSAIDs that kind of do both, COX-1, COX-2? Yeah, so ibuprofen, that's which you've a, all heard before. That's a well-known one. Well-known. So that's in Australia, Nurofen, in America, Advil. I that's right, yep. Okay. And diclofenac. Okay. So which is Voltaren. Voltaren. So you see that one sometimes in the Voltaren gels. So when you rub a anti-inflammatory cream, let's say you've got knee pain or something, so that's got that particular ingredient in it. That's right. And uh, so that's what we call a, a non-specific COX inhibitor. Okay. As it also is ibuprofen. 
Yes, but in saying that, it sort of moves over across to Cox too. So like I said, you could say that. So ibuprofen is probably the one NSAID that sits right in the middle and inhibits both Cox1 and Cox2 potentially equally. Naproxen inhibits both Cox1 and Cox2, but probably more so Cox1. And diclofenac or Voltaren inhibits both Cox1 and Cox2, but probably a little bit more so Cox2. All right. And then the only COX-2 inhibitor that's on the market at the moment that I'm aware of is Celecoxib. So the COX-2 specific inhibitors are called COXIBs. COXIBs, yeah. Uh, and this one is called Celecoxib, also known as Celebrex. Which is the most well-known selective two. Yeah, and, and it's one that people probably take if they've got osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. Okay, because... But we'll get to that. Yeah, all right. So that's... The most so the most common drugs that we will talk about now is aspirin, naproxen, ibuprofen, um, diclofenac. <laughs> Good that you knew I couldn't say it. And celecoxib. Yep. Okay. So we know where they fit now. We know that some of them are COX one specific, some of them non-specific, and some one is specifically COX two. Yes. Now, do you want me to go into a couple of them? Specifically? Yeah, let's start. Do you want to start with aspirin? All right. What do you know about aspirin? I know that it comes from the willow bark and that's the end of it. <laughs> All right. So, yes, it's probably one of the most common use, used drugs in the world. I think I did a bit of research and I found that about 80 billion tablets are used every year. Of aspirin? Of aspirin. 80 billion tablets. Yeah. Um, six, significantly more from its cardioprotective use rather than its pain anti-inflammatory. Okay. Okay. It was once referred to be at the wonder drug that works wonders. Really? <laughs> I think Who came was, up with that headline? I, I think it was the company that created it, which I believe is Bayer. Okay. Okay, German company. Yeah, they must have made a mint from aspirin, I assume. Okay, so it's from a family. What family does it come from? Do you know the... Uh, is it the Johnston family or the Sally, Franklin? Sally Cyclones. Oh, so you mean chemically. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the salicylates. Yes, and so... The silly sallies? No, the sally salicylates. Sally The sally silly silly sallies. Sally salicylates. Okay, yeah. salicylic so acid basically. This comes from a derivative of salix, which means in Latin willow tree. Oh, okay. okay so salix means willow tree, and like you said correctly, that um, this drug, aspirin, was derived or first noted probably thousands of years ago if, if people drank from a river where the willow bark or the willow tree's bark or whatever yeah. went into the, into the water, if you drank from that water, your fever would go away or your pain would disappear. And your stomach would ulcerate. Yeah. <laughs> so Hippocrates said that... This particular um, derivative, it was known as a bitter powder then because I didn't really know what it was, Yeah, would ease aches, pains and reduce fevers. Wow. So it was known for a long time. But it wasn't until about 1829 that a, I think a German pharmacist showed that salicin is the active ingredient. Okay? Right. So if you take salicin in your body, it is modified to salicylic acid. Okay. okay. I don't know what salicin is though. Salicin is just a specific derivative of the broader, um, 
I guess, the ingredient bark? from the willow bark. Yeah. So if I were to take some bark and just start chewing on it, I'm taking salicin, and then it turns into aspirin, basically. No, no, not yet. It <sighs> turns in. So salicin turns into salicylic acid. Yeah. Okay. Salicylic acid. Now, salicylic acid was used for quite a, quite a long time, but it was known pretty quickly that it caused significant amount of stomach issues. Gotcha. And just remind me why that would be the case. Well, because aspirin or salicylic acid is COX-1 specific in regards to its inhibition of prostaglandins and the prostaglandins produced by COX-1 are important for maintaining gut integrity, so mucus and bicarbonate. Therefore, if you stop this, no more mucus, no more bicarbonate and all you're left with is the acid to play around and wreak havoc to the walls of your stomach. Which is a problem. Yeah, just a little bit. I think in those days... This particular drug was used predominantly for pain and swelling, so it would have been used at a higher dose yeah. than we currently use it for um, platelet aggregation inhibition. So, and I don't think they had any idea as well to what right. was causing a heart attack. That's right. Okay, so then we move on to Felix Hoffman. So he was the the pharmacist that his actual father was using salicylic acid okay. um, for his own ailments. Okay, but he was getting significant. Gut issues. Gut issues. Mind you, I'll just interject here and say- On yourself. Uh, <laughs> on myself and say, I took, I took aspirin recently and gave myself gastritis. Yeah, what a fool. Yeah, so I took it on an empty stomach because I had a headache. I had nothing else in the house. I thought I'd take an aspirin. And it was a, no, it was a okay, a couple of things. First of all, this is your favorite drug. Wrong. It's not my favorite <laughs> drug. When I get migraines, I use dissolvable aspirin. Okay. Um, but I also use- um, Voltaren or Diclofenac. But firstly, used old, no oh, I think, brand, I think it was old. no brand yeah, dissolvable very... aspirin that you just ate and <laughs> on, one, an em- on an empty stomach and you got gastritis. Yes, yes, all right. For a month. No, I got it for a couple of days. It was pretty bad though. It was painful. Okay, so this particular chemist known as Felix Hoffman, employed by Fried- Friedrich Bayer and Co., so that's obviously going to be the Bayer company. Um, his father used salicylic acid for his ailments. Okay. He was getting stomach issues. So, so what he was thought the plan? He was like, oh, we had to change this somehow. So what he thought. What year was this? 1929, did you say? No, this is in the 1800s. Oh. So he thought, I will change. The, in, in the salicylic acid, there is an acid side group. Okay. And he wanted to get rid of that or cover it up. So he added a acetyl group to it. Yep. And so it changed to acetyl salicylic acid or ACA, okay? And this basically was the start of aspirin. All right. Okay, so this is now essentially aspirin, okay? So we're at aspirin. So um, I was going to have a point. Well, it's, in, in, it's important just to note here that when you induce, well, when you, when you take in um, drugs that are derived from salicylic acid, such as aspirin, they're actually... Um, acid forming. So they actually, when they're metabolized in your body, they actually put you into a metabolic acidotic state. In the blood. In the blood. But it's also, not to say you'll get metabolic acidosis, but it will put you into a state of producing hydrogen ions. Which your body counteracts quite quickly. But also, it's a local acid. So if you take these drugs, you know, on an empty stomach, it's irritating. Gotcha. So okay. it's directly irritating. Directly physically irritating. Okay, because this is an important point, which I always... And that's why I say things like aspirin sometimes have enteric coating. Yes. So they're not dissolved in the stomach. 
Well, a couple of things. So everyone's probably heard of, you know, when you're taking an NSAID like ibuprofen or aspirin, take it with food. And they say this because they say, well, you got to take it with food because it helps soften the blow of the drug on your stomach. And my thought would be, well, you know, the peak it's, peak time in which- anyway, right? Well, yeah, and the peak time that your stomach- a uh, peak time in which this drug, you know, the serum levels are at its highest. It's like an hour afterwards. Your stomach potentially, if you've just had a banana, is going to have squirted that all through to your duodenum by then. So I don't, never understood why people would say, eat it, with, take it with food. Um, however, it seems to be that it really does soften the blow and reduce the gastric effects. But it also seems to uh, lower the absorption rate as well. All right. So we're currently in 1897 with, and we now have acetyl We're going to go year by acid. year, guys. <laughs> okay. So it, Bayer didn't really use it for a couple of years. And it wasn't until the head scientist at Bayer decided to release it. This was in 1899. But they didn't uh, – the way they decided on the name is they didn't extract it from willow bark, okay, because it's – Willow bark's not the only place you can get it from. You can get it from other flowers. So they used to derive it. Well, That's going to go through every flower now that you can get aspirin from. They derived it from a particular flower that they call meadowsweet, which is spiray, and that's where the word aspirin comes from, spiray or spirine, aspirine, aspirin. <laughs> Okay. Wow. So then aspirin was now used and- How's that fact, everyone? Are you going to keep that fact in your head well, and like tell it. your friends? Now, it wasn't until the 1970s that we, re- that we found out actually how aspirin worked. Really? So the person was John Vane. He got a Nobel Prize. So he discovered in 1970 how- So it- is this the first person to identify Cox? Probably. Ah. Yeah. And so he f- figured out in the 1970s, got the Nobel Prize in 1982 and was knighted afterwards. Wow. So then we know exactly how it works. So that's aspirin. Yeah. Primarily, as we said, it's a very successful drug for blocking platelet aggregation. Yeah, so aspirin inhibits COX-1 specifically. COX-1 is important to create prostaglandins that produce gut mucus, gut bicarbonate, and also platelets. So if you take aspirin, it stops gut mucus, stops bicarbonate, but also stops clotting, especially at the lower levels or lower concentrations, and hence why this is used for cardioprotective strategies. Okay. Are there any side effects of note that you want to talk about here? Well, we've pretty much already brought up, but GIT bleeding is probably the biggest one. Um, Ulceration bleeding, especially in uh, people who are already at risk. So it's often you'll find that if people are, are on aspirin long-term, they're probably also going to be given uh, PPIs or proton pump inhibitors as well okay. as to, to protect the stomach. So basically, if you're not going to produce the mucus, well, let's not produce the acid either. Right. Okay. I think it's also contraindicated um, with children under 12 because they can d- develop something called Ray syndrome. Which, oh, yeah. which is to do with blood flow, I believe. Yeah, I forgot about that. Uh, and also there are some people, and you're going to probably counteract this, but there's some people that seem to have an aspirin uh, allergy, which can cause like uh, asthma-like symptoms. Yeah. So that's well known, but didn't you say... Yeah, so the, so it's, it's mainly the discussion between whether uh, so aspirin and ibuprofen um, have an effect... Or is it paracetamol and ibuprofen? Are you sure it's aspirin? 
Aspirin's a big one because it's okay. aspirin induced asthma. Yeah, so I, I know that the evidence for ibuprofen induced asthma is a bit squirrely at the moment. Um, so I would just say if you know if somebody has a history of asthma um, and they want to take an NSAID, that it's best to consult your GP because they'll be able to tell you the best medication, pain relief medication or anti-inflammatory to take if somebody is an asthmatic, such as a child. All right, so that's aspirin. Do you think we've covered everything we need to in aspirin? Yep, I think we should move on to naproxen. What do you reckon? All right, you take over. I take over. I'll come back and do paracetamol. Okay, so, um, well, naproxen is both a COX-1 and COX-2 inhibitor, but probably a little bit more so a COX-1 inhibitor. So what that means is naproxen is going to have similar effects to that of aspirin, which means it does have a bit of a uh, platelet-blocking effect, uh, but also can have its effect on the gut too. So stopping mucus and so forth. It's not salicylic acid like aspirin. It's propionic acid. Okay. Or prop- uh, yeah, propionic acid. Uh, and propionic actually means first acid because it's actually one of the smallest fatty acids that they've been able to produce. And the propionic acid, just out of interest, Matt's going to give his stupid facts. I'll give one of mine, <laughs> is that it, propionic acid is the reason why we have body odor and why cheese smells is because of this particular chemical. It's actually the chemical that makes up naproxen. Now, naproxen, you've probably heard of it. It's got a lot of trade names, but one of which is naprogesic. Uh, You've heard of naprogesic before? I think naprogesic was more of an older school NSAID. Uh, But anyway, uh, an important point because naproxen sits closer to COX-1, even though it's both COX-1, COX-2, it actually has the smallest overall cardiovascular risks mm. of, all, all the, yeah. um, of all the NSAIDs. The less Ex- cardiovascular toxicity, yeah. Exactly right. Um, so apart from that, that's all I've really got on naproxen. Obviously, it plays a great role with uh, stopping pain, stopping fever and stopping inflammation and also has that slight cardioprotective effect. Okay. Oh, what about ibuprofen? Got anything there? All right, so ibuprofen is both COX-1 and COX-2. It uh, doesn't seem to be one so more than another like the other ones. Um, low dose it seems to be, you know, equal as beneficial as aspirin and paracetamol. Are we going to talk about paracetamol today? Yeah, I'll do that next. Okay. Um, it can be used to help close, like Matt was saying, the ductus arteriosus. It's one of the ways they do this. Uh, it seems to be quite good at improving things like gouty arthritis or even osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis. We're going to talk about the coccibs shortly, like celecoxib. And you probably heard that the coccibs are used specifically for joint-associated pain. Well, um, but why is that? Okay, so because... The, the evidence was that they thought that it stopped specifically prostaglandins that were produced in joints. Um, but this just isn't, isn't the case. So the evidence now shows that ibuprofen, but, for example, and it, it more so Voltaren, is just as beneficial, if not more beneficial, to treating arthritis-associated pain than celecoxib. Yeah, my understanding, and I could be wrong here, but my understanding of why they went into the coccibs was... People who were using NSAIDs for joint pain, so the arthritis, so this could be rheumatoid and osteoarthritis, these are chronic states, so they need to be taken at long term, right? Yeah. yeah. And so these NSAID drugs that you mentioned like ibuprofen and naproxen yep. are great, they work, but you really can't take them for more than two weeks. Because of the gut issues, right? Or got gut issues, kidney issues, 
cardiovascular potential issues. So particularly mm. if you have patients who are cardiovascular risk or they've got renal insufficiencies or, yeah, gut. Yeah. So they work, mm. but they cause complications. So let me, okay, so that's a good point. Cause, so let me rephrase my statement then by saying that in a, um, a group that are not within a cardiovascular risk factor group, so an average population, there's no benefit of taking celecoxib over um, ibuprofen, for example, or Voltaren uh, in regards to its ability to mitigate that inflammatory-based pain. Yep. However, celecoxib is more expensive, yep. so it's probably not cost-effective to be celecoxib. Um, but if it is a group that is also prone to gut issues, then it probably would be moving over to celecoxib. However, like I said, we've now got really great ways of counteracting the uh, gut-associated effects of NSAIDs like PPIs, for example, proton pump inhibitors. So it seems to be that if somebody takes a long-term NSAID with PPIs at a appropriate dose, it's potentially fine. Yeah, and I think it's also that you can take some of these drugs in conjunction with prostaglandin promoters so seems counterintuitive. Yeah, but but apparently you can counteract the stomach effects by putting more of the you know I forget which one of the PGEs wouldn't have more of a function in the stomach. Okay, so there is that possibility as well. Yeah. All right. Uh, I thought another important point here is that uh, because uh, okay, so I just want to compare ibuprofen to aspirin just briefly. Uh, so what the studies have shown is that. If you want to stop some inflammation-based pain, that ibuprofen is going to be far better than that of aspirin. So studies basically showed that if the amount of aspirin you would require to have an equivalent anti-inflammatory effect as ibuprofen to stop some sort of uh, joint-associated pain over a 72-hour period would be around about four grams of aspirin. And so that's, that's, that's in the toxic doses. So basically, I think Matt said it, the only thing that aspirin's probably good for at the moment is cardioprotective. Mm. I mean, there's so many other drug options that are better than aspirin when it comes to pain, inflammation, and fever. And probably the doses that you would take for just the cardioprotective would probably not cause you a great deal of issues to, That's your, right. to your stomach. All right. All right. Paracetamol, also known as? Um, acetaminophen. 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 Acetaminophen, yeah. So I'm going to call it Matt's paracetamol. That's terrible at pronouncing words. You can't even say my name half the time. Okay. So that's true, actually. I always spell it with a H. Yeah, Heichel. <laughs> All right. So paracetamol kind of came off the back of aspirin as well. So. Oh, we didn't talk about side effects of ibuprofen. I thought you did it. I was just Okay, let's do it. Okay, so side effects of ibuprofen. Um, again, you, you can have gut issues because there is overlap with these things. Um, so they just say take with, take with food. By no means as bad as uh, aspirin um, or even naproxen. Uh, but one of the big issues, especially with abuse of ibuprofen, is that of kidney disease or acute kidney insufficiency or acute kidney um, disease, right? And so this is due to the fact that you're stopping the prostaglandins at the kidneys. Uh, and I, I don't think, I don't know if we said it, but the prostaglandins at the kidneys dilate the afferent arteriole 
of the uh, blood flow coming into the nephron. What does all this mean? Well, the blood in the body needs to be filtered. Like I said before, 120 mils per minute. And the diameter of the blood vessel coming in plays a big role on how much blood is getting filtered. Prostaglandins dilate this blood vessel so that more blood comes in to get filtered. If you take NSAIDs like ibuprofen, it can stop these prostaglandins, constrict that afferent arteriole, reducing how much blood's getting perfused, and therefore this can result in acute kidney injury. You okay with that? Yeah. So would this be applicable to everyone or more so for patients who are vulnerable with kidney, with their, their kidney functions already vulnerable? All about doses, but everyone, but obviously a vulnerable, vulnerable population um, needs to have this conversation with their medical provider. Okay. All right. Okay, sorry. So you want to see the benefit? I think also just to add that, add one point which I did allude to earlier that ibuprofen is probably going to be um, contraindicated or heavily considered to be, not to be used in conjunction with your aspirin because it will negate the effects that the aspirin will do. Yeah, good so point. It will, it will counteract the cardioprotective effects by um, probably inducing a platelet aggregation, okay? So probably through the other, not the thromboxin, but the other one, what was that? Prostacycline. Prostacycline. But also it seems to have, have an effect to vasoconstrict the coronaries as well. Okay, so that's good. That's a problem. That's the opposite of what you really want to happen when you're taking low-dose aspirin. Yes. So that's just something to be mindful of. And I believe, yeah, I think that's all. Really. So why are we talking about acetaminophen now? It's not an NSAID, right? No, because an NSAID would assume that it's an anti-inflammatory. It's in the name. Yeah. But <laughs> so it's, so if, if you were to put it in there, you would say it's a non-steroidal drug. <laughs> it's non- but it does so it doesn't mitigate inflammation but it's, it's good for pain what about fever it's good for fever okay but not for inflammation gotcha so okay. it is it is anti-pyretic and is also analgesic yes but not anti-inflammatory correct um, gotcha and, but we don't completely know how it works there's what do you mean well we know it pro- you don't well definitely I don't uh, I did a, a reasonable bit of research on it and a lot of jackal s- a lot of studies have just, they're not conclusive. So I was under the impression that it, work, it does work on the same pathway. It just doesn't yeah. act upon the prostaglandins involved in inflammation. That was my impression. Yeah, yeah. So you'd be probably correct there because they, they've found that um, certain effects, like when we spoke about the ductus arteriosus, if, mm. a, if, a, page, if a mother was taking pan- paracetamol, that it would actually then close it. So paracetamol and acetaminophen are the same thing, right? Yes. Okay. And, so it and must Tylenol. Have a, so it must, Tylenol would be the American um, name. But it has the same effect as ibuprofen in closing the ductus arteriosus. Yeah, so it then would demonstrate that it has some effect on the COX enzymes. Okay. Yeah. But again, not sure. But not anti-inflammatory. Not anti-inflammatory. So if you have inflammatory-based pain... You wouldn't take paracetamol. No. Acetaminophen. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's, that's good to know. Uh, and it, what about toxicity? It seems to also... Does it have renal toxicity like the others? Not as much. Not as much. Um, there is metabolites that are produced by the breakdown in the liver of paracetamol. So all of these enzymes break toxic. down in the, in the liver, we should say. Yeah, they have very good, they have very good absorption capacity. Mm. Um, their bioavailability is pretty good, but the way that they're metabolized is all different. Yeah, a lot of them are lipophilic. 
So paracetamol, I'm going to do a bit of history again. <laughs> Michael rolls his eyes. Okay, so 1884, again we're in Germany. The Germans did very well in that time in their pharmaceutical area. Okay, and I think it's also Bayer related. Good on them. I think it's also Bayer related here as well. So in 1884, there were two doctors that were reporting to Adolf Kussmel. Okay. Kussmel. Kussmel. And I assume. Like Kussmel breathing? Yeah, that's what I'm assuming. I'm assuming it's the same physician that um, came up with that Kussmel. Maybe he gave them enough opioids that it resulted in depression of respiration. Or maybe Kussmel breathing is associated with. Oh, no, I'm thinking chain, chain Stokes yeah. breathing. DKA. Yeah, Kussmel's DKA. Rapid breathing. Yeah. Maybe he made them hyperventilate. <laughs> Maybe he gave them so much acetic acid, uh, sorry, salicylic acid, that they did become acidotic and they were breathing like that. And yeah, hence the Kussmel breathing. There you go. Brilliant. There's the link, guys. Brilliant. So anyway, crack the case. These practicing doctors came up to Dr. Kussmel and said, look, we've got a patient with a worm infection. They would have said this in German, I would assume. Yeah. Um, Can you do it live? Guten Tag. Accent. Guten Tag. Uh, that's about as far as I've got. Um, Mind doctor. <laughs> Keep going. Um, so there's a worm infestation with our patient. We need to somehow rectify this. And so Dr. Kusmel said, look, I have this in intestinal antiseptic known as naphthalane. Naph- naphthalane. You would have thought he would have practiced this before we started. <laughs> he said, take this drug. And give it to the patient, and it should cleanse their um, their worm infesta- infestation. What is this drug? Naphthalene. Naphthalene. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna have a look and read it. Okay. Moving on. So they gave this drug to this patient. It didn't seem to have any effects with the um, worm infestation. And, so he was wrong. And any effect on the ailments that are associated with the worm infestation. So why did he say that? Well, let me get to it. Okay. But what they did notice is the patient's fever disappeared. And so they were like, this is strange. So they went back, they wanted to explore this particular drug's effect on fever. So they went back to the pharmacy and said, um, hey, you gave us this drug. It didn't seem to work for the intestinal worms, but it knocked out his fever. And then the pharmacist said, oh, I actually gave you the wrong drug. I gave you acetonolide, okay? Acetonolide. Okay. Okay. So it has the similar um, start as acetaminophen, okay? So acetonolide, okay? So it wasn't actually hit, gave the drug that they were intended to give. So the, this poor bloke had worms and they gave him the wrong, the wrong, the wrong drug, <laughs> the wrong drug, acetonolide. That's right. So then they wanted to explore this acetonolide. So they, the same doctors went and gave this drug to a whole lot of rabbits and uh, dogs. Right. In the, labo- in the laboratory, not just out in the street. All right. Okay. They found that it worked. It was successful in, As what? Re- in reducing the fever of the rabbits and dogs. Okay. So How do they induce fever in rabbits and dogs? Good question. I, I didn't find that in the, in the uh, paper. Infection but, maybe? Yeah. Ugh. I guess they would have had it somehow inducing a reaction like that, but it did reduce the fever in those particular species. Then they brought them into their patients, so that they then um, trialled it on 24 patients, Yeah, and they found that it worked great, so they gave the drug the name antifebrin. Oh. Basically, you know. Febrile. 
That's right. Um, but the only side effect is they saw that the patient, <laughs> the patient went blue. Okay. Okay. So basically this drug. Just that small side effect. Basically this drug. Is it drug, cyanotic? Uh, not cyanotic, but it was hematoxic. So it, oh. it caused a, a state called methemoglobinemia. I've heard of that. Okay, so that in, and I think this is where paracetamol can be toxic to other animals like dogs and cats. I think it puts them in this hematoxic state. Mm. I could be, I could be wrong, but that's what I did read into that it induces methemoglobinemia. Okay, globinemia. Globinemia. Okay, so they. So want, what's that mean? It just means so they it, wanted it to pushes do, the oxygen off. Yeah, the hemoglobin, and added another Com- group to it. Competitively binds. So they wanted to look at alternatives to this uh, acetonolide. Yeah. Okay. Because it's now shown to be toxic. Great for fevers, but toxic. But bad for life. <laughs> yeah. So they then Bayer, this is in the 1930s, looked into slight derivatives of that. And this is, they came up with phenocinetin. Okay. Phenocinetin. <laughs> So these are hard that, names. Do you these think are, that you've names. mispronounced every Possibly. drug so far? Possibly. Now, this drug, this slight derivative, showed a lot of promise. It did basically everything that the last drug did, but it started to knock off people's kidneys. <laughs> okay? But Jeez. it was effective. Okay? At what? Like killing them? At both doing the, the fever side of things. Mm but also the analgesic side Okay, good news. You don't have a fever. But, Bad news, kidneys but, are gone. But in long-term use, it was shown to be detrimental to the kidneys. And the, right. and the way that they figured this out was, particularly there was a cohort of people for some reason in Switzerland. Now, in Switzerland, which I'm not sure was Switzerland then. Was Switzerland, Switzerland or was it part of Germany? I don't know yeah. why you're asking me. <laughs> anyway, so for some reason, there was a cohort of workers in Switzerland that were working on watches in the manufacture of watches. It was a big industry in those times. And because the construction of watches required a lot of focus and probably um, eye... Hand-eye coordination, dexterity. and so forth, it caused a lot of headaches on the job. Okay. And so there was a certain amount of drugs they called just headache pills, which yep. this cohort of workers just went wild with. All right. And so these, there was three... Watchmakers gone wild. Yeah, there were three ingredients in these headache pills. There was the phenacetin, which we spoke about, aspirin, and caffeine. Oh. Now, caffeine can be useful in headache-type pain. Vasodilator? I think they're vasodilator or vasoconstrictors. I'm not sure which. One I think, the- well, you want to do one or the other because what causes a migraine is the rapid changing of one to another. So it doesn't matter if it constricts, doesn't matter really if it dilates, but you just don't want it to constrict, dilate, constrict, dilate. Yeah, so right. these pills were used for these particular workers quite successfully. They were actually great for headaches. Cool. But these cohort of people... Were urinating blood. ...were overusing them. Yeah. And for some reason, what started to pop up in that part of Switzerland was a type of kidney disease called interstitial nephritis, which would be probably the combination of the aspirin, the effect of the aspirin and the phenacetin. Right. Okay. Now the phenacetin is the one we're talking about. We've already spoken about aspirin. So they finally realized that the, 
the phenacetin is the molecule they have to modify. And this is... To make acetaminophen. That's right, to, find, to make the paracetamol. So okay. it wasn't then until the 1946... Wow, so in we're we've, we've kind of moved quite a lot now, where US scientists looked and found that... It seems like we, we're, we're going through the dates in real time. <laughs> <laughs> that when the body um, metabolised phenacetin, it actually made it into... Paracetamol, which wow. is not paracetamol. It's the chemical equivalent to it. Paracetamol's trade name, isn't it? That's right. So acetaminophen. Or the generic name. Yeah. But the chemical name, I don't know. It's probably N-acetyl yeah. something of Venifol. Yeah, something like that. So. So we're done with. Uh, almost. Okay. So now we're left with paracetamol. This is where I'm going to end. Paracetamol generally is a very well tolerated analgesic drug. Okay. In its therapeutic dose, it's doesn't generally cause... Very safe. Yes, very safe. However, in high amounts, it's extremely hepatotoxic. Okay, Okay. so we've spoken about nephrotoxic, but now hepatotoxic. So when you take a paracetamol, and it's it's well um, tolerated in your GIT, unlike the aspirins, so it's not going to necessarily cause physical effects. It's well absorbed. When it gets to your um, liver... Remember, all blood from the GOT has to go through your liver first for first pass metabolism. It's metabolized in three ways. The biggest way, about 40 to 67% of it is processed by your liver, adding a glucose group to it, which is a glucocronide. Okay. It's a, a sugar group which makes it water soluble. You can pee it out. Yeah. Another group adds a sulfur group to it, and that's about 20% to 30% of metabolism is is in this way, okay? As a side point here, children under the age of two, this is the only way they can um, metabolise paracetamol. Is what way? Is through adding the sulphur group. Ah, Their liver hasn't uh, matured enough to be able to add the sugar group. So when you give paracetamol to children, you have to be extra cautious because their their metabolising ability is much lower than an adult would be. Okay. So I think in paediatrics, it's about 15 milligrams per kilo. That's the way they kind of work it out. For children? For, for children, yes. Now, the final point is, or the final way it's metabolized is through um, that 5 to 15% of it's metabolized through N-acetyl-P-benzoquinolamine or NAPQ. Okay. This is extremely hepatotoxic. Ooh. Extremely. All right. So when a person ingests more than four grams of paracetamol, these toxic metabolites will build up in your liver yeah. and kill your hepatocytes off. Wow. And you will essentially go into acute liver failure. But they're only produced when you take a lot or a they're lot. always produced. It's just that once you hit a certain quantity, Correct. it's too much to Correct. deal with. And so... After so, if you're now looking at the a toxicity toxicity point of clinical practice, uh, the physician, if a person overdosed on paracetamol or acetaminophen, the the doctor or the physician has about eight hours to work with. Otherwise, your liver's gone. To give the anecdote, the anecdote, anecdote. So you got to tell them. You got to tell them the story. (laughs) Tell them the story. Yeah. So you can give a drug called NAC. It's obviously the acronym. I don't know what the the chemical is. It blocks this this um, particular metabolite building up and causing it its hepatotoxic effect. 
but you've got about eight hours to work. That's the window to work in. Wow. Okay. Now, if you miss that window, the liver will go into complete shutdown and you'll probably go into multi-organ failure. It's called N-acetylcysteine. Okay. That's the antidote. Not N- the anecdote. Not the anecdote. <laughs> the antidote is N-acetylcysteine, N-A-C. Now, the NAPQ, which is the toxic metabolite, that is also nephrotoxic okay. in enough quantity that will knock your, your kidney off as well. So take-home point is uh, Panadol or Tylenol. No. no yeah, yeah, Tylenol. Tylenol. Um, in the States, or basically acetaminophen is quite safe at the therapeutic doses, uh, but going over can be damaging to your liver and potentially re- irreversibly damaging. Yeah, yeah. Once you've got to the hepatotoxic level, there's no going back. And so mm. the, biggest, the biggest cause of acute liver failure in at least younger persons, probably in the Western world, is paracetamol overdose. Wow, that's And horrendous. I think at least in Australia, 13,000 um, consultations with the poisoning centres in Australia is due to paracetamol overdose. Really? Yeah. My so God. it's by far the, the largest cause of, uh, um, it's not prescriptive, pharma, pharmacological-based overdoses in Australia. But wow. I, I'd assume that is in all the Western world. I didn't know that. Yes, so significant. All right, but so but I, it's a well-tolerated drug and it, in, in its therapeutic phases or its therapeutic uses, it's very safe. But it's, it, it's a drug that's used in many other drugs. So it can be used in cold and flus. It can be used in hybrid medications like putting with codeines. So you've got to be careful. It could probably be even used in syrups. I don't know, like yeah. cough syrups or so things like that. So you've got to, take too much. You've got to be sh- sure what you're ingesting because you might be using a bit of Tylenol here or Panadol here, but then you might be using it for something else and then you might have an overdose. Case. Yeah, good point. All right, so that's it for pa- paracetamol. Yep. Sorry for my pronunciation on all those long chemicals, but they're Let's tough finish words. with the last two NSAIDs, which are diclofenac and celecoxib. All right. So we'll be quick because... Uh, Diclofenac, which is Voltaren, I'm just going to say Voltaren because it's far easier, um, even though that's its, uh, it's uh, commercial name. Um, it's both COX-1 and COX-2. However, it does push over towards COX-2 and therefore, if it pushes over towards COX-2, it may play more of a role in inhibition of platelet inhibition, so pro-clotting, uh, which means that there are some studies out at the moment looking at whether Voltaren or I shouldn't say Voltaren specifically, but diclofenac um, is pro-clotting and can increase likelihood of cardiovascular events. Currently it says probably not, um, but it's it's, uh, still being evaluated at the moment. It's interesting because it's one of the only drugs that seem to be associated with um, topical use. So it seems to go with use in patches and gels. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's interesting to see why that might be the case, whether it has a, a greater side effect profile or maybe it's easier to be absorbed topically, I'm not sure. It seems to be probably one of the best anti-inflammatories of all the NSAIDs uh, is diclofenac and that's probably because it's both COX-1, COX-2 but a little bit more COX-2 because a lot of the inflammatory prostaglandins seems to sit more under the COX-2 banner. Um, when we look at the last one, and did you want to say add anything else to 
De Clofenac? No, I don't even really know much about it. Okay. So, uh, Salicot- and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to go okay. there. Look, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly too because why say it when you can just say Voltaren? It's probably the most common one out, at least in Australia. Now, when we look at the coccibs, so this is interesting. Coccib is a COX-2 specific inhibitor. And like I said, COX-2 uh, inhibits platelets. So if you inhibit this inhibitor, it's pro-clotting. Now, this is important because the old school coccibs uh, one of which, for example, is called rofecoxib or effects. I think it's rofecoxib, um, which was under now the name. Now he's got the problem. I oh know. Under the name Viox, uh, it had shown, well, a number of studies uh, showed that. Because I think Viox and Celebrex came out at similar times, right? Similar times. And so they did a number of studies comparing the two, but also comparing it to other NSAIDs and comparing it to placebos and found that uh, in, in patients, um, who were at an average risk for GI bleeding, um, that one, coccibs probably aren't uh, cost-effective. They're very expensive. And so we know now that if you're comparing coccibs to like ibuprofen, my, probably ibuprofen is maybe, uh, well, definitely cheaper. Uh, yes, it increases your likelihood of GIT upset. So if you're at a risk, in a risk category, probably not worth taking, but again, discuss with the GP. Um, Celecoxibs came out because they do protect the stomach. Um, I shouldn't say they protect, they just don't have the problematic effects of the stomach. But also for long use. For longer use, but they also do potentially increase likelihood for clotting. So what I was saying um, was that uh, some studies showed that it increased the likelihood of clotting. Um, I think it was up to, uh, there was a fourfold. So they compared um, rafacoxib, which was one of the old coccibs. Vi- with Viox. Viox with naproxen. And we spoke about naproxen being COX-1 and COX-2, but a little bit more COX-1 inhibition. Compared those two and they found that rafacoxib had a fourfold increase in myocardial infarctions over a nine-month period of taking it. Did, did you get the number? It was something. No. It was something like thirteen thousand over its five-year use. Uh, something of like MIs that. or deaths or MIs. Wow. So which which resulted in something like forty to sixty percent deaths wow. from those MIs. No, so I didn't. It was, it was significant. So, um, but this fourfold increase in MIs was only in the found in the um, cardiovascular risk group. So it wasn't an increased risk in a non-cardiovascular risk group which means maybe if the average person's taking rafacoxib, it's not going to increase your likelihood of having an MI, for example. However, more studies came out and they showed, yeah, look, it doesn't seem to be too safe. Um, the fact that it increases your likelihood of clotting isn't a great thing. Uh, they had a look at celecoxib, and currently the evidence for celecoxib is that it doesn't seem to increase the likelihood for clotting. Yeah, and that was a relatively recent study, a New England paper, yeah. journal of medicine, yeah. yeah, and that's the uh, that's the. But, but I guess the take home message from us: we're not clinicians. We're trying to give you the basic science of how these things work and, and read the studies on what's presented to us. Yeah, the best thing you can do in this space, if you're unsure, is talk to your physician. Yeah, none and of ask this these questions. None of this is advice. Please recognize that uh, we are just highlighting the evidence. And if you do take NSAIDs and you want more information, talk to your GP. If you want to change medication, talk to your GP. Remember, just because it's over the counter doesn't mean it doesn't have drastic side effects. So it's always important to discuss with your physician 
exactly what drugs you are taking because, and this is where I think we want to finish it, there are a number of contraindications of taking NSAIDs with other drugs. Mm. So just think about it. You probably, if, if you're a budding health professional, uh, you probably know already from what we've said other drugs could be that have this effect. So for example, think about the fact that um, you are taking something that increases your ability to potentially clot or, or let's think about aspirin, decreases your ability to clot. What if you're on warfarin, which decreases your coagulation? You don't want to take warfarin with something that also decreases your ability to clot because it's going to increase your likelihood to bleed and bleed outs. Yep. So that's a contraindication, aspirin with warfarin, for example. Lithium is another one. Did you know that? No. So it seems to, the NSAIDs, um, in, in its entirety seem to increase lithium serum levels to a point that may be damaging to the nervous system. So make sure you, again, talk to a GP if you're on lithium and you want to take some NSAIDs. Um, methotrexate. So uh, that, that, high, that would be for rheumatoid arthritis? Yep. High doses of methotrexate seems to be uh, poorly tolerated with NSAIDs. Uh, and here's the big one, antihypertensives. Yes. It, so... NSAIDs can raise blood pressure. Yes. Probably through a combination of vascular alterations, but also kidney autoregulation. Yeah. And so in this case, if you're a person that's taking blood pressure medication, particularly the prills or the sartans, mm. the interaction could be quite profound. And so this is something that you would have to look into. So, Or even the diuretic. So I think the... Uh, the three that go together that can cause significant problems to your kidneys would be diuretics, ACE inhibitors or angiotensin II blockers and um, NSAIDs. Beta blockers. Yeah. So that's something that has to be... The calcium channel antagonists don't seem to be... uh, don't seem to have an effect with NSAIDs, which sort of highlights that it may all be mediated at the kidneys. Renal or extra renal. Yeah. All right. We done? Should we do a quick run through or are you happy with Okay, this is the take home message. Prostaglandins promote pain, inflammation and fever. We want to stop them so we stop their production through inhibition of COX enzymes, COX-1, COX-2. There are drugs that we can take called non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs that inhibit either COX-1 or COX-2 or both. COX-1 specific, aspirin. COX-2 specific, celecoxib. COX-1 and COX-2 non-specific, naproxen, ibuprofen, and diclofenac. COX-1 plays a role in mucus gut lining and protection, but also pro-clotting. Type 2 plays a role in anti-clotting. Therefore, if you inhibit one or the other, you're going to have the opposing effects, which is important. Um, Generally speaking, if these drugs are abused or not used properly, it can result in kidney disorders, uh, acetaminophen, more so with hepatic disorders, but these NSAIDs can be associated with hepatic disorders as well. And also with acetaminophen, it seems to have more centrally COX effects. So the effects of blocking COX enzymes in the CNS, which is probably the analgesic effect. Yeah. With the cannabinoid effect as well. Yeah. And so all of these drugs, if they need to be taken, should be taken in the appropriate dose range or therapeutic range. And if people want to take these drugs and they're already on medication, they should discuss with their GP whether there's any contraindications or drug-to-drug interactions. Yeah, and re- refer to the instructions at the back of the box because that will also tell you certain 
situations to be aware of. And the most important thing is uh, you should follow me on Instagram <laughs> at Dr. Mike Todorovic at D-R-M-I-K-E-T-O-D-O-R-O-V-I-C or you can contact us on Twitter. I'm at Mikey Todd yep. and at Dr. Bartox. All right, guys. Oh, just go into Facebook, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. Uh, watch our YouTube channel. Contact us, email us, do all that fun stuff, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.